Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. Today, the classic universal film, Dracula from 1931. I am Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. No, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you today? Tell me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms. watched Inglorious Bastards for the first time last night. I had thought I had seen it before, and then I realized that I had only seen part of the ending and had not seen any of the film leading up to the scene in the theater. But my son, who's really into history and I think is also starting to be really into Tarantino, had been asking for a long time to watch it, and last night was finally the right night. And boy, is that film fun. I mean, like, super violent, as all the other ones are, but actually one of the more fun Tarantino films, for sure. Well, let me just say that I am a huge Tarantino fan. I've seen all of Quentin Tarantino's films, except one. And I'm a bit of a history fan myself, and I want to get around to doing some World War II stuff. So I have held off for a long time on one Tarantino film. That Tarantino film is Inglorious Bastards. It's the only one I haven't seen. Now, it's really hard not to have spoilers because even Tarantino spoils it in his later films. Yeah. <laughs> it sucks. I already know more than I want to know about it because just it's all over the place in our culture. I was hoping that we would get to it on this show sometime. Yeah, it's it's been fun working through them and and actually just kind of revisiting a lot of films that I loved when... I was a teenager, like we watched The Big Lebowski the other night, and I hadn't seen that in 10 years. And it was great to see that the jokes still hold up so well and that 
Finn at 14, yeah, just just loved, you know, I mean, especially John Goodman's character never gets old in that film. Yeah. So that's what I've been up to. Catching catching up on movies that my son wants to see that were favorites of mine or things on my list. Let's jump into today's film. Dracula. I am Dracula. This 1931 version is the first sound film adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel. Although when you watch it, you can tell that it is also just a very early example of sound films generally. It still has a lot of the look and feel of a silent movie. And depending on which version you're watching, it may or may not have a score. Originally, there was no score, but then in the late 90s, early 2000s, Philip Glass started touring with a version of the film that he had scored himself. And the score actually sounds like the sort of thing that would be attached to a silent film. It holds on to the mood of that. But if you're watching it on Amazon, you probably got the version without the score. There are DVDs out there, the version with the score. So just know which one you're looking at. I got to weigh in on this. Okay. I really like Philip Glass. First really discovered him around the 1980s when I was getting to more unusual contemporary music. However, I lasted five minutes into the Philip Glass score version of this and then went back, turned it off. I was watching the DVD for which the score was originally commissioned. And I went back and started it over, watching it from the beginning without the Kronos Quartet. I don't think the movie needs a score. I think it's creepier without the score. I also think that the film wasn't made with that score in mind, so it doesn't really work for it, in my opinion. They didn't follow the on-screen action as they scored it like a contemporary composer would. They didn't watch the film. They just composed the music without seeing what was going on on the screen. So it doesn't really match. It's way too contemporary, in my opinion. It does not sound like a vintage string section would sound playing to this film. And last but not least, it is badly mixed, in my opinion. So the score is way too loud in comparison to the film itself, the talking on the screen. So all those factors combined, I give a thumbs down to the Philip Glass score version of this and say, watch it without the score. So I watched it without the score. And then when I started doing research on it, I found there was one. And because I'm such a huge Philip Glass fan also, I went back and actually watched the film from the beginning. but with the sound playing on my phone so I could create my own sound levels and mix, I guess, and maybe that improved it slightly. So it's one of the early sound films and still takes a lot of cues from silent movies and also some cues from theater because this version is not just adapted from the novel, it's also adapted from a play version of the story. Several actors were considered to play the title character, including Horace star Lon Chaney, but Chaney died suddenly, so they had to look around, and Lugosi, who had previously been playing the role on Broadway, 
eventually got the part, thanks to the fact that he was willing to work for just $500 a week. So in total, Lugosi got $3,500 for his portrayal of this character, which even back then was not a lot of money. He was kind of mysterious on set. He didn't really socialize or talk to people. He was pretty eccentric to the point that folks wondered, maybe he's not even acting. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is just who he is. And, you know, he would say good morning and good night when talking to the crew, but otherwise pretty distant from everybody. Of course, this is the role that made him famous, but he didn't sign on to do other Dracula titles afterwards because once the film became such a huge success, he realized he'd never get away from it if he did. The film was partially shot on sets at Universal Studios in California, and those same sets were reused at night for a Spanish-language version of Dracula, which sounds kind of insane now, but actually was pretty common back then, that they would just simultaneously shoot foreign-language versions of films. And there's actually a third version of the film, in addition to the Spanish version, that is a silent film. Because at the time that this came out, not all of the movie theaters had been wired for sound. It was still in that transitional period, but they wanted it to play in as many theaters as possible. So you can actually find a version of this film with intertitles as well. But if you've got a sound version, one of the cool things to note is that the sound effects were done by a Foley artist named Jack Foley, as in Foley effects. Same guy yeah. who pioneered it does the effects in this film. So I thought that was pretty cool that this was one of his projects. Film was completed for $341,191, which was actually under budget. When was the last time you heard about a film being under budget? <laughs> Some of it, though, is, you know, silent films are often a little bit more spare. They decided to save money by not hiring a composer to create a score. And as you heard, Eric and I have our opinions about how well that works. But um, director Todd Browning had a strong reputation as a silent film director and had made a lot of silent horror films with Lon Chaney, which was why he was on their radar first. But after Dracula, he only directed six more films, including the film for which he is best known, second to Dracula probably, Freaks. One of us, one of us, that freaks. So Browning definitely, you know, between those two films, cemented himself as, as a great early horror director. Uh, the version that you saw also is probably the postcode version of this film. The original version, which was released in 1931, is a pre-code version of the film. And depending on which version of the DVD you're watching or whether you're watching it in streaming... Some of the bits that had been cut out may or may not have been restored in what you're seeing. The most notable part is a curtain speech at the end of the film in the original version, which more or less tells people, like, don't worry, vampires aren't real. <laughs> because so they were worried that uh, that people might, might go out uh, believing in the supernatural. And so that epilogue has been removed in part because the way it was done, like, they weren't sure whether it was actually discouraging people from thinking vampires are real or possibly doing the exact opposite of, you know, like, beware, you know, when you get home. 
kind of thing. The fact that this film was such a huge success is what allowed the Dracula franchise and the popularity of vampire stories to really hit mainstream. I mean, of course, it was popular due to Stoker's novel, but in terms of it being a viable cinema product, the fact that this film was successful and under budget certainly helped. Who wants to eat flies? You do, ya loony. Not when I can get nice fat spiders. This is a rare instance where I've got a pairing for this that I have not yet tried. So normally everything that I cover in the lobby segment is something that I actually ate or drank while watching it. In this case, it's not. Because it's human blood. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No. I was unable to obtain this. Again, human blood. (laughs) No, that's easy. (laughs) In the novel, on the first night in the castle, Jonathan Harker is offered a bottle of Tokay. It is wine from the region of Tokay in Hungary. It's sweet wine. Usually they're like white wines or, or green grape wines. They're grapes that have been affected by what's called noble rot. And there's a long history of vintners using these in that region. The nectar of these grapes is actually mentioned in the national anthem of Hungary. The area where it's grown is a plateau about 1,500 feet above sea level, which is 457 meters. It's near the Carpathian Mountains. The soil is volcanic and contains a lot of iron and lime. So it's this microclimate that is peculiar to that particular region. That is what I would pair with this if I could have gotten a hold of a bottle to try it. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of other wines mentioned in the novel. They talk about wine and brandy a lot in the novel. But this is the one that would actually be consumed in the region Dracula is from. Although he doesn't actually consume it. And one of the most famous lines from this film is when they have this scene where... Renfield, who is the predecessor to Harker in visiting Castle Dracula, is served wine and Lugosi says in that great accent, I never drink. Why? Yeah. So that's my recommendation for what to pair with this, if you can get a hold of a bottle. Well, that's a pretty good segue to jump into talking about the film, because one of the things that's unique about this version is that it starts with Renfield, who in the novel and in other adaptations is a character that Harker is aware of as his predecessor who went mad, didn't make it. But we don't actually see Renfield's initial interactions with Dracula in the original versions. Instead here, we follow Renfield instead of Harker going through more or less the same motions in the story of traveling to the castle. But Not before we get to hear part of Swan Lake as the overture, which I have to say worked very well. I don't know how you weigh in on on that. No, that was good. That was good. 
Yeah. yeah, apparently they use Swan Lake for, like, Frankenstein and, like, a bunch of other horror <laughs> films of the time also. Like, it was, it's just the de facto music. Contrasting that with the glass score is a perfect example of what I mean. It sounds period. Also, there's silence in there. There's space in the music, whereas glasses is like wall to wall. Yeah. There's never a moment where it's quiet, and that kind of bothered me. Not to keep beating up on the glass score, but (laughs) I have read the novel Dracula fairly recently, actually. But it's been a long time since I read the short story Dracula's Guest. I remember it to some degree, and I believe that that was originally intended to be the prologue to Dracula. I'm not sure, but I'm trying to figure out in my mind if Dracula's Guest was uh, Renfield. If the character of Renfield was that character. Probably, but I think there are enough elements of it that are recycled in Harker's journey and initial narrative that I don't know if it's a standalone thing or if it's more like a proof of concept short, as as we say in the film industry. Checking the internet, I see that Dracula's guest follows an Englishman who is presumed to be Jonathan Harker. Okay. It occurs between these two cases. I don't know if Renfield ever visited Transylvania in the Stoker universe. You know, it may be a totally an invention of the films that he doesn't encounter Dracula until Dracula arrives in England. But whatever the case is, I think they made the right choice here. It actually works well to have that not be Harker and have to explain the whole like Harker there thing. Then there'd have to be a whole Dracula encounters Renfield and like puts Renfield under his power, you know, and all of that. It it just in the interest of simplification, it actually works cinematically, in my opinion, you know, to have the events that happen in Transylvania be really, really cut down and be Renfield and then have Harker introduced. That is an excision I like. I will get to the excision I don't like here in a minute. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with you. In the book, after Harker leaves Transylvania, he becomes almost a non-character. So since this film mostly takes place after the Count arrives in London. And I mean, we should say most of the film. Like, it's a 75-minute film. It's, it's a very economical story that they're telling here. But I thought it was interesting that, you know, Renfield's on his way there, and we already have the villagers saying the word vampire. Like, not just, you know, crossing themselves or, like, indicating kind of vague ways that they think going to the castle is a bad idea. Like, they flat out say, like, Haven't you heard the rumor he's a vampire? (laughs) Yeah, don't go there. (laughs) Don't go there. Um, Which, you know, I I think is surprising just for horror films in general. Like, you know, there's there's no suspense about, like, what is the Count's deal? It's like, nope, we're just going to assume you know this anyway. So why not just spell it out right from the beginning? Yeah, and in classic horror fashion, he doesn't listen to him. You know, yeah, like it's bad enough when people don't listen to like the vague rumors about something in horror films, (laughs) but this isn't vague at all. It's like, just don't go there, you know, (laughs) 
<laughs> Don't go there. He is a vampire. <laughs> the castle is certainly creepy, but actually Count Dracula presents himself pretty well. We get some of the same mysterious happenings that we get in the novel where, like, there's a driverless carriage, his belongings disappear and then reappear somewhere else. There's a bat flying near the carriage, like some of the same kinds of uh, supernatural sort of things happening on his way there. And when he arrives, the Count is very sophisticated. You know, he's wearing a perfectly tailored tux and he can walk through cobwebs without getting covered in them, which I thought actually in terms of all of the things that they could have tried to do to indicate Dracula's supernatural powers like you know that his shadow has a mind of its own or like any like all those kinds of special effects wouldn't really have been possible in 1931 to do correctly but the way they have this trick shot of he clearly walks through a gap in the cobwebs that we can't see because of the perspective but then when uh Renfield gets there he's like wait how did you just walk through these cobwebs yeah I thought that was a cool thing, not from the novel, but like really well done. Okay, so I have to be the counterpoint to this and talk about some things not from the novel in this very beginning that struck me as a little bit odd. And that is the local fauna of Dracula's cellar. First, (laughs) we have what I think is supposed to be giant rats, but they look like possums to me. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely possums. So... Possums, okay, possums in Romania, you know, so there's that. And then armadillos? Like, what the hell? Okay, I was going to give them a pass on the possums. I was about ready. And then armadillos show up? Like, what is this? Some kind of weird American zoo that he has? I wonder if they tried to get rats and then, like, for whatever reason, rats weren't available. So they were like, okay, well, what can we find in California? You know, and the possums work. Because they're rodent looking, you know, okay, so I can believe, okay, these are just some weird giant rats. Rodents of unusual size. (laughs) Yeah, rouses. But the armadillos, that was like a marsupial too far or whatever they are, you know? I don't, they're probably not marsupials. I have no idea what the hell an armadillo is. But you're right, it's some kind of mammal. And, you know, let's just take a second there to realize, like, we're mammals and so are they. Okay. Sorry. Now now that I'm breastfeeding, I like become aware of these sort of things like, oh my god, I have so much in common with whales. I didn't know I had so much in common with whales before. Anyway. Okay. All right. <laughs> back to back to the film at hand. <laughs> back to Dracula. <laughs> Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Lugosi's performance is amazing. And we'll talk about this as we talk about a whole bunch of other Draculas. And I don't want to like do any spoilers for opinions on other Draculas. But I got to say, his reputation is well-deserved. Because I've seen a lot of people portray Dracula that I am not convinced is a Romanian prince. You know? Yeah. This guy pulls that off. The spider spinning his web for the unwary fly. The blood is the life. Mr. Renfield. That could be a Romanian prince today, you know? Yeah. Well, that and he, you know, just through sheer force of will, you know, he's able to 
get people to do things. And the way they shoot it, you know, definitely feels like something out of a silent movie. It's just like a lot of close-ups of Lugosi's face. But I was never bored looking at that face, just like just those eyes boring into you, showing through, you know, sheer alpha power, you know, that he's menacing in a way that was surprising for a film this old. A lot of what we know of as Dracula gets set up in this film. In a lot of ways, this is more the blueprint of Dracula's that will follow than the book is. And one of those is, I'm pretty sure this wasn't in the book, but it was in this. And that's the paper cut crucifix scene where he cuts himself and then Dracula goes to suck the blood or drink the blood or whatever and sees the crucifix and is like repulsed by it. That is repeated in later versions of the film version of Dracula. Okay, are we done with Transylvania? No, we get to see the wives. That scene's actually really well done, like with the fog machine and the wives have this like ethereal beauty, but, you know, also something kind of haunting about them. And Dracula like puts up a hand and... In the book, you know, he very explicitly says something like, he's mine, or, you know, but here, Dracula doesn't have to say a word. What I found really interesting about this scene is the way that Dracula so slowly descends upon his victims in each successive scene. It is actually creepy and seductive at the same time, and just having a villain who doesn't feel rushed, like a villain who feels like, they can really just take their time with their victims is something that goes a long way to demonstrating their power. So this moment where we never actually see anything, you know, it always fades to black when Dracula is about to drink someone's blood, but we see him descend upon Renfield and it feels seductive in a way that like I'm surprised made it into the film. This is one of the great, aspects to this version of Dracula, because if you, again, if you read the novel, one of the major themes is that evil can take its time. He has plenty of time. It's the heroes that have to rush around in the novel to try to stop him. He's got centuries, so he can even retreat and come back later. So they have to defeat him and they have to catch him at all these different times. And I think even in this movie later on, we'll get to a scene where he talks about how the oldest person amongst them, which is Van Helsing, is so young. Yeah, he hasn't even lived one lifetime yet. <laughs> For one who has not lived even a single lifetime, you are a wise man, Van Helsing. Renfield passes out and then is bitten by... Dracula and made into his slave. And from there, we pretty much cut right to the boat that they're on their way to England right after that. Okay, the boat. Let's talk about the boat here, because there was recently a film made called The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which is the name of the boat in the book. In this, the Demeter is called the Vesta. And I knew about Vesta as in Vestal Virgins. And stuff like that. So um, they're both uh, mythological names. So I went and double checked. Because I wasn't positively sure. I was like, is this just the Roman name for Demeter? 
And then why did they do that? But in fact, the Roman name for Demeter is Ceres. Yeah. But Ceres is one of a triumvirate of sisters. And one of the sisters is Vesta. Mm. Why they chose to change Demeter to Vesta, I am not sure. I've always thought that this is like a crazy risk Dracula takes traveling by ocean. Because if anything happens... Yeah, just like a regular storm. (laughs) Yeah, that could be the end of him. Although, on the other hand, do you think Dracula has the power over storms? Like, can he... In the book, he does. In the book, he does. I mean, he actually... He can help it via the winds. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems like such a big risk versus traveling overland. While no one is expecting him. You mean, like, in in this early... Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, no matter what, he would still have to travel partially by sea if he wanted to go to London because, you know, there was no channel then. Yeah. (laughs) Once he's established in England, he encounters the rest of the main players at an opera, I think, right? Yeah, Die Meistersinger. It's a Wagner opera. So they have their own private box, and this is where we meet Jonathan Harker, Mina, his fiance, Dr. Seward. Who in this version is Mina's father, which is an interesting elision just to make it clear why they're all a foursome right now. This is another good condensation for the film, in my opinion. It works that way because Mina's father really isn't a character in the book. And at one point, Renfield talks about he would keep Mina awake if he was screaming, which is actually is from the book. But. That doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense, except for they're in close proximity to the sanatorium. You know, it's just very strange. But that was a good improvement. And then also Lucy, who they call Weston here, but it's Westerna in the novel. Yeah. I'm just going to say it now because I don't want to come back to it later. This is the departure from the novel. One of the departures that bothers me the most is Lucy's introduced and then... They never have the whole Lucy becomes a vampire, that whole thing. It's like, why is Lucy even here kind of thing? And in the novel, the fight to kill Lucy is actually one of the best scenes in the novel, in my opinion. And I I mean, part of condensing Dr. Seward's character is that in the novel, he's one of her suitors. He's one of three suitors. And that a big part of what's going on there is something that we see in more contemporary horror movies for us, like Halloween, where like the sluts get it, you know, like if if you're perceived as having any kind of, you know, wantonness whatsoever, then you are setting yourself up to be led astray down other paths of evil that will end in your destruction. And here it's the same kind of thing of like in the novel, Lucy is portrayed as you know, having these three suitors, it's not nothing more than that really is going on. But then the fact that she is selected as a victim of Dracula's, that there is that same kind of thing that you see in Halloween or or anything like that. But yeah, I agree with you. I, you know, after she gets bitten and then just kind of disappears for like 20 minutes, they do come back to her at one point, but they never really resolve Lucy's thread in this story 
and you miss out on a lot of the suspense, you know, that a lot of the suspense in the novel is them not knowing what is happening to Lucy and trying to figure out if they can save her. And the reader kind of knows what's going on, but not fully here because we start off with the story saying like, Count Dracula is a vampire, like, you know, <laughs> that there isn't an investigative element here. And I agree. I missed that also. Can we just pull out one line, though? Yeah. In that opera scene, Dracula says, To die, to be really dead, that must be glorious. There are far worse things awaiting man than death. Like, just, like, really great line. And for whatever reason, it really does it for Lucy. She's, like, all about the count <laughs> because of this, you know, super macabre stuff. Anyway, I thought it was it was just a it was a great line and very well delivered by Lugosi. Renfield is this mystery at the sanitarium and we have Van Helsing show up and he decides to analyze his blood and somehow that leads him to the conclusion that vampires are afoot. Yes. And Renfield himself is aware that he's not fully under Dracula's control. And so he wants Dr. Seward to send him away, which Seward won't do. So the movie can happen. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The way that he communicates to Renfield is in his wolf form by howling. And they hear the howl. They hear the howls and they're like, isn't that strange wolves? We don't have wolves in, in London, but this is more confirmation to Van Helsing of what's going on. So he brings out the wolf's bane, which I like later interpretations of this and earlier interpretations where it's garlic, like in the novel, it's garlic. Yeah. Garlic makes more sense. Wolf's bane. That's werewolves. Yeah. I I was like, why, why change that? You know, that was, that was a cool detail was that it was garlic and I guess it wasn't exotic enough or they thought people would laugh or I, one thing I'd like to say is I really enjoyed how you heard the wolves off screen and we never saw them. I actually kind of liked that Dracula's transformations always happen off camera. I mean, obviously, cause it's 1931, but having seen versions where there are more special effects trying to capture kind of some of that uh, you know, the transformations. I actually liked this better. I liked it simple where, you know, suddenly you pan and he's in the room. And I thought that was, that was very well done. The bat with the strings that you can pretty much see, you know, I don't think there was a way for them to avoid having the bat, but, uh, that, that did not hold up. (laughs) The bat. Yeah. I think the bat probably worked for people in the 1930s but not by modern standards. Speaking of him showing up in her room, panning over and seeing him there, this is another area where vampire mythology has evolved for movie vampires where they can't enter uninvited. That's not the case here. He just shows up and bites her. (laughs) Cut to the next night. They have uh, him over. He comes over and we have everybody in one room for the first time. And then Helsing notices in, I think it was like a cigar humidor thingy. Was that what yes. it was? He he lifts it up and there's a, like, it has a um, 
a mirror in it and he notices that Dracula has no image in the mirror. And in typical this movie fashion, you know, <laughs> there's no like subtlety about it. It's like, hey, look, check it out. The guy has no he Van Helsing just like confronts eight times. Him. Yeah, just like seven or eight times in order to hammer it home for the audience. Like, do you get it? You get well, it. Well, not only right? that. Van Helsing completely plays his hand in a way that he doesn't in the novel and just says, hey, I know you're a vampire by showing Dracula is like, hey, take a look at this, you know? Yeah. Dracula smashes the mirror and makes up some excuse and takes off. So one thing about that scene that really bothered me is in this version, Mina comes off as being a pretty little idiot. Like the whole film. Like she's just completely useless damsel in distress type character. And in the novel, she's presented as what they were calling at the time a new woman. Like she knows how to use a typewriter and she's, you know, engaged to be married, but, you know, more or less independent and traveling on her own and, you know, sort of has the closest thing to a career that a woman could have at the time that she had been a governess and that you know she had these practical skills and so to have a character that for the time period was considered boundary pushing for a woman character to have that go backwards here was really annoying okay sorry that was my soapbox i will get off of it now but i the mina defenders of the world unite like she's a good character and they fucked it up here (laughs) well i have some issues with with even the Mina of the novel, but I I don't want to get into that today. All right, fine. But yeah, you're right. It, this is definitely a step backwards as far as Mina goes. But anyway, now they know that Mina's been bitten. Van Helsing sees the bites and like orders her to wear wolvesbane around her neck and has Nurse Briggs. It's too bad we don't have Rosie here. <laughs> <laughs> Nurse Briggs to take care of Mina. Uh, Renfield overhears them and they confront him and he's like, yes, I heard you guys talking about this stuff. And he starts to spill the beans about Dracula, but then Dracula shows up and he says, No, no, master. I wasn't going to say anything. I told him nothing. I'm loyal to you, master. You kind of know that's going to be the end of, of Renfield. We have this amazing contest of wills scene with Dracula and Van Helsing, where Dracula's trying to do his special stare power to get Van Helsing to come closer to him. And we watch Van Helsing resist and then seem like he's going to give in and then ultimately be able to withstand it. That moment was really cool and is something that I don't think is in the novel. I haven't seen it in other adaptations, but I really liked it here. Van Helsing just knew that Dracula needs to sleep on his native soil. Vampires need to sleep on their native soil. Yes. So they're like, how's it possible if he's here? And that's when he said, well, he could have brought the soil here. The strength of the vampire is that people will not believe in him. What happens to Mina? It seems like she's all ready to turn vampire. She admits that she has consumed some of Dracula's blood. And there's a hilarious line where Van Helsing says to Dr. Seward, like, quick, there's not a moment to lose. And then they like very slowly clomp up the stairs. <laughs> great, great. Yeah. This movie type moment. 
she almost tries to bite Jonathan and eventually confesses what's actually going on. And now they realize that Mina's only chance is if they destroy Dracula. But before we make our way to Carfax Abbey for the final dispatchment, I, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge another addition to the story that is not in the novel, which is the character of Martin, the assistant at the sanitarium, who has this hilarious Cockney accent and it provides comic relief throughout the film. One of the most zinger lines he has is he's talking to the maid as they're getting ready to leave. And he says, they're all crazy except you and me. And sometimes I have my doubts about you. <laughs> Which, which is just like a great just line inserted in there. So they make their way to Carfax Abbey, and depending on the version of the film you have, Dracula's death scene either plays like really loud, passionate death throw sounds, or the version I saw was kind of anticlimactic. There are a couple gasps, and then it's kind of over. But this was another thing that they censored once the Hays Code was put into effect, both Dracula's death and Renfields were kind of made to be simpler, less dramatic, less violent sounding. I didn't know that. Both off screen, though. Yeah. I didn't know that because the only version I've ever seen is the censored version then, because it was really quiet and anticlimactic in some ways. The Dracula I grew up knowing was the Christopher Lee Dracula and also Dracula from like the old... Viewmaster, do you know what the Viewmasters were? Yeah. Like there's oh, a yeah. Viewmaster reel for Dracula. Hammer Horror Dracula and the Viewmaster Dracula is basically where I got most of my Dracula knowledge from, but also some degree this film. So I always thought that the final confrontation with Dracula happened underneath Dracula's castle, be that either his castle in Romania or Carfax Abbey. That's how I always remembered the story being. You know, and after rereading the novel recently, the final confrontation with Dracula actually happens just in the open. On the road. Yeah. Just off the road. They were overland. Yeah. It's outdoors, yeah. right? They're trying to intercept him before he gets back to his castle. And it's kind of anticlimactic that way in the book. It's a much better death to come and kill and stake him in his lair, you know, and that is one thing where, although the sound effects weren't there, the actual location, that was a good call, in my opinion, to, to, to make the final confrontation, you know, in the basement of Carfax Abbey. Yeah. I, of course, am a diehard devotee of the Gary Oldman, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I've seen that you know, 20 times. This one I'd only seen once before. And re-watching it again, I actually like this adaptation a lot more than I thought I did. I think, you know, it's it's not as true to the book, but as a movie, it works really well. You know, with a 75-minute runtime, they do a lot. Bella Lugosi's performance is incredible. Definitely should add this to my rewatch list for Halloween's in the future or just if you need a vampire night. I watched it without the soundtrack, and it's actually like a really cool example of cinema at that cusp between silent and talking films. And so if you're interested in cinema history, this is a really cool example of what was going on in that transition and kind of seeing that transition at work. 
Yeah, some people claim that it is the first talky horror film. I don't know if that's the case, and it may depend on how you define horror, but some people claim that. I think it's great. I think that the stage play pacing is a little bit not suited to the screen, but a lot of people complain about the stage play acting, and I actually, it works for me. Like, I think that that sort of dramatic acting, both Bela Lugosi as Dracula and Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing give excellent performances. The vampires are pure myth, superstition. I may be able to bring you proof that the superstition of yesterday can become the scientific reality of today. I agree that Mina and Lucy are both not great the way they're portrayed here. Renfield is decent. He definitely seems insane. Yeah. (laughs) The rest of them are pretty good. It also becomes a little disjointed toward the end. It feels like there's missing scenes there. Like, it's not as fully developed right toward the end. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think cutting away from Lucy's storyline and then coming back to it, just kind of like briefly touching on, you know, the children she's been abducting or whatever, and then kind of going back to the Mina narrative does feel like they lose momentum rather than gain it in those sequences. Yeah. Now, the reason to watch this is the performance by Bella Lugosi, and it is a must-see for anyone interested in cinema or interested in horror or both. However, I got to put a plug for... George Melford's Spanish Dracula, Mm. which if you're talking about watching stuff in future Halloweens, I would recommend watching that because aside from Bela Lugosi in the lead, okay, if you can just get over that part of it, which is really the highlight of this one, everything else is better. Hmm. So it was shot on the same sets at night. So this is day for night that they were actually shooting at night for Spanish Dracula. On top of that, they got to see the dailies from Todd Browning's version and improve on them. Yeah. So the camera angles are better. The costumes are better. It is better in every single way, in my opinion, except not having uh, Bela Lugosi in the lead. Other than that, I highly recommend it. Until next time, (laughs) This is Eric. This is Johanna. Signing off.